Good morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the elders and members here at Pillar Jacks. want to also welcome you here this morning. It's great to be in the house of, of the Lord. And uh, one really cool thing about Pillar is it's, it's almost impossible to attend here for any certain amount of time and not just sit back and be passive, um, kind of like Stephen had talked about. Um, we seek to endeavor to raise men and women up um, to go forth and spread the good news of Jesus, to disciple others and be discipled. And it's just an amazing thing. Um, so, yeah, it's just an amazing thing to be a part of. Uh, one note uh, leading into, uh, into the service here. Um, so, you'll notice at the back of the room, there's coffee back there. It showed up uh, a little bit late. We ran out of filters. That's okay. So, don't feel bad about getting up. It's right in the room. Grabbing that coffee so it doesn't go to waste. Um, coffee is a blessing. Pretty sure that's why I got invented money to begin with. Um, so now, having made that, uh, let's go ahead and move into the service. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick up right where J.D. left off last week um, at the tail end of chapter 8. And we're going to read from Acts 9 to, from 1 to 31 this morning. Uh, and as we turn there, we're going to talk a little bit about some recent events. Recently, only a few weeks ago at this point, U.S. Special Operations hunted down and killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the public leader of ISIS, since approximately 2010. By all reports, if you're familiar, and if you've read the news or been part, you know, within the Marine Corps, you know that al-Baghdadi was a true believer of his faith. And in the moment of his imminent capture, rather than allow himself to get captured, he actually killed himself. Baghdadi had led since 2000, at least 2010 and been part of the movement much, much longer than that, had led a movement that still exists here today uh, around the world that endeavors to establish physical kingdom or caliphate here on this earth and subjugate all through force to either convert, be enslaved, or be put to death. Although accurate accounts are really impossible, or counts that is, hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children have been killed all across Syria and Iraq as part of this brutal fight against ISIS, of which included in these numbers are the deliberate targeting and killing and persecution of thousands upon thousands of Christians, to the point of which many are calling what's gone on in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere around the Middle East surrounding ISIS and affiliated groups as genocide towards Christians. Today in Acts 9, we're going to talk about two other individuals that are really, in fact, we can see as one in the same. We're going to read about Saul and his conversion, Saul being another true believer, just like Baghdadi, intent on eradicating the people of the cross and the open tomb from this earth. But importantly, we're also going to discuss ourselves. We're going to see our app with direct application. We're going to talk about how before conversion, you and I and all those that have still not trusted in Christ are true believers. And we are true believers in ourselves. We're committed to glorifying ourselves and in doing so are crucifying Christ, are persecuting Christ without accepting his free gift of salvation. And then we're going to also see how God chose and transformed Saul. We're going to discuss how God transforms us and gives us purpose when we are saved. And we're going to explore Saul and the sinner's life in three aspects. Before, during, 
and after transformation. And we're going to see the fruits of that transformation and that maybe if God can save and is powerful enough to save Saul and us, maybe he's even powerful enough to save a person like al-Baghdadi. So let's go ahead and read starting in Acts 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went, at, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the, ch- so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the com- comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you a sovereign God. Lord, we praise you for being all-knowing, for being all-powerful, for being all-loving, for being all things good. Lord, we praise you for the transformational work that you work in our lives. Not because of something that we are or that we do, but because of you being loving and merciful and all-powerful. Thank you, Lord, for for giving us this, this example of Saul to examine. Please let us see in Saul our own lives and see the work of transformation, what it looks like before, during, and after transformation. And Lord, let us understand our purpose in transforming us of how we are to go out to be chosen instruments by you and to make you known in this world. We thank you for all these things and ask that you just allow us to focus on your word here. Let me say only the things that you desire, that you be glorified here this morning. In your name, amen. Alright, so the title of today's message is The Lord Transforms. And the main idea here is that the Lord transforms Christians into chosen instruments to proclaim and suffer for Christ's sake. So today's message is likely pretty familiar to everybody, to many that are here in the congregation this morning. It's of the conversion of Saul. This is an exciting one for for me to teach on, to preach on, because it's no accident. My name's Paul. It was very deliberately chosen by by my parents. So it's always been of a special interest to me. Uh, in my life in Christ, to look at the life of Paul, to look at his teachings here and how he he was used by Christ. And so here, we're intro- like back in chapter seven, we're introduced to Saul. He's just described as Saul. We're introduced to him at the standing by of him being a part of and condoning and approving of the stoning of Stephen, right? The, the killing, targeted killing of a Christian that was only seeking to glorify Christ. Here in chapter 9, we see that Saul has become not only a passive participant in the targeting and killing of Christ, but he's now actively helping to lead this effort. And he's become a key part of the religious leaders and high priest plan to eradicate the followers of Jesus. So we see in verses 1, he goes to get authorization from the high priest. He then goes to Damascus on what we would call a capture or kill mission, targeting the Christians that are there, that have been scattered. But on the road to Damascus, the Lord intervenes. He reveals himself. He confronts Saul in his true belief and his persecution of himself. And he leaves Saul blind, But he doesn't just leave him on the road to Damascus. He sends him into Damascus where Saul is left weak and just waiting, blinded. At the same time, though, we see that the Lord speaks to his disciple Ananias in Damascus. He commands him to go to Saul. We see he restores Saul's sight, physically and spiritually, and we're going to get into that. And then, but first, right, before Ananias goes, he questions the Lord, knowing Saul's original mission. 
Right? He knows Saul's stated purpose of why Saul is coming to Damascus. But ultimately, he obeys. He follows the Lord's guidance and instruction. And then Saul, once again, he receives his sight physically and most importantly spiritually, is baptized and recovers and is is brought up by the disciples in the strength of the Lord. And then Saul proclaims the gospels, we, the gospel we see here in the synagogue, synagogues, shocking everyone. And thinking back to the example with ISIS, this is like, if you're familiar, when really we saw the news reports of ISIS coming onto the scene back in 2014 time frame. This is as if, picture yourself in northern Iraq, because this happened. This happened in the province of Nineveh, in the area of Nineveh, up north, uh, northern Iraq in the Kurdish region. So if you think of where Mosul is, to the east and southeast of Mosul, heavily traditional Christian area. This is as if, as if you're there in one of those villages and you get the reports, you've heard, you see the refugees streaming down the road saying that ISIS is in the next village over, they're on their way here, the black flags are there, they're crucifying Christians, they're hauling people out on the streets, they're slaughtering them, they're telling you to either convert, be crucified, or be enslaved, paying taxes. It's one of those. So you're there waiting, you hear the report, they're coming down the road to your village, you go hiding into your house, you don't even have time to, to leave. But instead of when those trucks roll up, those emissaries from al-Baghdadi, because that's who was sending them out there, instead of them hauling you out into the street, they actually go to the local mosque and they start preaching Christ, that Christ is the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, and the actual Son of God, Allah, in, the, in Arabic, Right? He's the Son of God. Think about the shock and amazement. And this is what happened here in the book of Acts in chapter 9. So, as we would be shocked and in amazement, the Jews, we see, were amazed here in Damascus as well. But then we also see their amazement turn into a reaction. And they make plans and attempt to capture and kill Saul as well. So, we see Saul escapes. He goes to Jerusalem, where the disciples initially fear and don't believe in Saul's transformation and conversion. But then, due to the witness of both Ananias and then Barnabas, they receive him and there, like in Damascus, Saul is preaching in Jerusalem, which causes the Jews there to react and seek to kill, seek to kill Saul. And we see he then flees to Caesarea and Tarsus. So now, that's essentially what we see in Acts chapter 9. And we're going to go ahead and break this down into those three parts. We're going to look at Saul's life and our own life before, during, and after transformation. Transformation is a change in character or condition. There's a before and there's an after. And that's what we're going to see through these three sections. So first, before transformation, we see that we seek to destroy Christ. We seek to destroy Christ. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Saul is on that mission to destroy Christians. Note that how he goes to the high priest, not to be tasked by them, Right? He's not impassive like, okay, you're ordering me to go find Christians? Yeah, I'll do it. No, he's going proactively to them to request that authorization to stamp out the followers of Christ. And this is in the same way that these hardcore followers of Baghdadi were committed to physical purification, hunting down and killing Christians, and is to establish that physical kingdom on this earth. 
Well, for us, before transformation, we also are committed to destroying Christ. Whether we intend to or not, whether we realized it or not, that is what we were doing. Think about it. Christ died on the cross for our sins, past, present, and future. He is that perfect and spotless lamb spoken of in the Old Testament, the sacrifice for our sins. For those that don't realize and recognize his awesome sacrifice, it is if we are repeatedly, like we're that Roman soldier, those Roman soldiers repeatedly pounding the spikes into his hands, into his feet, and hanging him up there on the cross without realizing, with no regard to his pain and suffering, and that the whole purpose is to save us from our sins that are hanging him up there on the cross. In another form, it's as if we're part of that crowd before Pontius Pilate, right before Christ was crucified, right? Pontius Pilate hauls him out, him and Barabbas, and gives the people the choice, right? You know, I'll release one of them, this diehard murderer that we know is, is, should be executed, or Jesus, who I've really found no fault in. And the crowd screams out, give us Barabbas, right? crucify Christ. How Do you think that everybody in the crowd really knew what they were doing? How many in, the, in that crowd were instead stirred up by the chief, uh, the chief of the priests, the chief priests, or maybe even being paid, or just going along with the mob to fit in? So while the intent might not be the same as Saul or Baghdadi, the intentional hunting down and killing, physical killing of Christ and, and his followers, the result is the same. As sinners, we are responsible for Christ's death personally. Our sin, through our sin passed down to us from Adam and Eve and then acted on by ourselves and that places us in the same position as Saul or Baghdadi. A position of deserving judgment for seeking to destroy and crucify Christ. Romans says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages for that sin is death. Prior to transformation, we are condemned to death for hanging Christ on the cross without placing our faith and trust in Him and accepting His grace, His free gift of salvation. So that's the first point. The second point directly related is that we are on a path to Damascus. Prior to transformation, we are all on a path to Damascus. For Saul, Damascus was where he could fulfill his purpose. That purpose to hunt down and destroy Christians. In his, in his true belief, right, he was following his purpose. Damascus was one of the places that the Christians had been scattered to escape persecution, but also specifically filling the Great Commission to spread the gospel to the world. Interesting, also at one point, and really it still is, Damascus represents a key objective and location for ISIS, and there's fighting that goes on there even now in the outskirts in their quest to conquer Syria. So before transformation, for we as sinners... Damascus can represent our desires apart from God. Outside of that transformational desire to glorify and please God, as sinners we are addicted to ourselves. Our purpose is to glorify ourselves and to fulfill our own passions and pleasures in this world. Damascus can be the promotion or recognition and praise at work, the gratification of sports or entertainment, the replacement of God with our family or the worship of the environment, the creation or the gratification of service to mankind for our own to make us feel good, all potentially good things if subordinated to a 
subordinated to a focus and worship on the creator of those things and following his guidance. And we know that even after our transformation, we are continually drawn, as the book of Romans, really the first, really the entire book of Romans points out in Paul's own, own writings, that we are continually drawn to our old selves and our desires to go to Damascus for our own reasons apart from God. So if apart from God, before transformation, we are seeking to destroy God on the way to achieve our own goals, then we've got to ask, what does life during transformation look like? And Acts 9 gives us a great picture of that. First, during transformation, Christ reveals His sovereignty and our blindness in sin. His sovereignty and our blindness in sin. On the road to Damascus, starting really in verse, in verse 3, we see that Christ reveals himself to Saul and confronts him in his sin. It is clear here that God chose Saul. Saul did not on his own come to know the Lord. He was not on the journey to Damascus. We don't see recorded contemplating Stephen's witness, coming through logically, working it through his mind and saying, you know what? Man, that's the only way logically that... Saul could be on being executed and still proclaim God's goodness and he asked for forgiveness for those that actually stoning him because they didn't realize what they were doing. You know what? Stephen has to be right. Jesus is the long awaited Messiah. No, what we see here is that God performs a direct intervention, knocking Saul to the ground. And we can also see in this passage though, although not by exactly the same means, at least in my life, I wasn't knocked knocked off my horse or knocked down while I was walking to Damascus physically. From Scripture, we know from the reading from Ephesians and from here in Acts and elsewhere that just like He chose Saul, God has chosen each one of us that come to Him as our Lord and Savior. We know this because like Saul, before Christ, we are blind in our own sin. Right? God uses this intervention in many, many ways. And we're going to talk about some of them throughout. Most specifically, the other believers, His followers here on earth. That He is intervening in our lives and is through His sovereignty and power. In this passage, He shows that what Saul thought was serving God was seeking to destroy God. He shows Saul that he was completely blind in his own power and wisdom. And to cement that point, what did He do? He left Saul physically blind. But he didn't leave him helpless. The Lord leaves Saul with instructions, right? He, he sends him to Damascus, the place where Saul thought he was going to according to his own will and purpose, but where God had predestined him to go. There in Damascus, Saul spends three days in complete darkness. His eyes open, but in complete darkness, symbolizing Christ burial in the tomb in preparation for his resurrection and conquering death. And in the same way, during our conversion and that transformation, we are confronted with our own blindness and sin. We are confronted with the fact that on our own merits, with our own willpower, separate from God, that we are in an unholy place and we cannot see God or be in His presence.
Turned it off accidentally. Got me now? Cool. It shows us that we must submit to His will and guidance for our lives. Romans 2, 12-16 shows us this. It shows us, and we're not going to turn there here, but I'd encourage you to, to read it on your own. It shows us that all stand under judgment under the law, whether Jew or Gentile. By the law of both provided directly for the Jews and for the law written on their hearts, evidenced by their own conscience. And Romans further says that all, like we said before, have sinned and deserve death, but thank God it doesn't. He uses sinners, Christ uses Christians to save sinners. We see this between verses 10 through 18. We see a powerful example expected for all believers and the hard task demanded as followers of Christ. Christ commands us to witness to our enemies. In this passage, at the same time Christ is sending Paul, or Saul, I'm going to say that numerous times, Blind into Damascus, the Lord is speaking to his disciple, his faithful disciple, Ananias, to go to Saul to show him the way of salvation and to return his sight. Initially, as with many of us, if not all of us, we respond in fear, knowing why Saul came to Damascus in the first place. But then God outlines in his grace and mercy the main point of this passage for Saul, Ananias, and for everyone here this morning. And we see it in verses 15 and 16. He outlines our purpose. He outlines that as Christians, we are Christ's chosen instruments to carry the gospel to all and to suffer for the glory and sake of our Lord. Talk about something radical. This is radical. This is it. Our primary purpose in life is not to be healthy, to just receive Christ's grace and mercy and then just sit there with it as fire insurance, or to be financially secure, or even protect our family. It's to witness to the least of these. It's to witness to our enemies, to Baghdadi, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. And it's to suffer ridicule or persecution for his sake. If we're playing the game right, God's game that he set out, this is what's going to happen. And we do so in order to bring glory to Christ's name and for his sake. So thank God we see in the passage that Ananias obeys the Lord, even in his fear. He goes to Saul, he lays his hands on him and witnesses to him. And the Lord then uses his witness to physically and spiritually heal Saul. Only then do we see the full transformation take place within Saul. In this same exact way, God uses his believers, you and I, 
to bear witness to all those around us and spread that good news of Christ Jesus. For me, it was, it was my parents, specifically my mom, that was able to help me understand what exactly the pastor at, at church and my Sunday school teachers were all talking about and that weight of recognizing that without Christ's saving power, that, I was, that I'm nothing and I can do nothing. That transformation does not happen through our own power. It doesn't even happen, right? It wasn't Ananias' power, but it was that Jesus, that God uses his faithful message, his messengers and witnesses. And in Saul's case, think about the beauty of God's perfect plan. God uses his faithful disciple to go and bear witness of Saul's transformation and to see that transformation firsthand. Ananias' presence is used perfectly in God's plan because it becomes critical to bear witness among the other disciples and apostles, both in, both in Damascus itself, but then later in Jerusalem. And to bring Saul into the fold and into the church and to further the spread of the gospel. Once again, God reveals the sovereignty of his plan in action. And we see our role in obedience to spread the gospel at the risk of our own welfare for the sake of Christ. And finally, during transformation, we see the sinners transform the life. We see what that looks like. We see that Saul believes he regains sight, is baptized, and is strengthened with the disciples there in Damascus. And this is the same for us when we're transformed. We believe, as the scripture says, that Christ paid our penalty the penalty for our sins. We believe and see that He gives us eyes to see the Scriptures as the living Word, not just some random book with a bunch of great moralistic tales or good ideas of how to live our lives. No, He gives us a living Word, God's Holy Word, directly, divinely inspired, that directly speaks to us. And as we saw the beauty of last week, He says that we're to walk forward and profess our faith in baptism publicly. And we are to be strengthened in a local church as we are this morning where we should be discipled in our walk in Christ and then turn and carry out Matthew 28 to disciple and spread the gospel of other, to others, to raise others up, to go out and be sent. So having seen our life before and during transformation, let's examine now what happens, what we could expect to see the various responses that we should uh, expect to see after transformation. First, we can be expected to grow in Christ. And this directly follows the last point of seeing the sinner's transformed life. Notice that immediately after conversion, what does Saul do? Saul was baptized, spent days with the disciples in Damascus to be discipled. Similarly, this is the role of the church. It doesn't end with conversion. It continues and really begins in force. After conversion, the believers that join with that local church, that body of believers, and begin to walk in their sanctification and growth in relationship with Christ and to execute that purpose that's outlined in verses 15 and 16. And the foundation of that growth should be in the in Developing that relationship with Christ, knowing Christ better, studying His Word, developing that foundation of constant prayer and communication with our Heavenly Father. And next we can see 
that we're expected to publicly proclaim Christ in our lives. Publicly proclaim Christ in our lives. And I'll add, in the hardest places, the most difficult places that God takes us to. We see in the scriptures here in verse 20 that Saul immediately goes to the synagogues and proclaims the gospel of Christ. And we need to see the boldness that the Lord's transformation instills. The Holy Spirit spurs Saul to go to the very heart of what should have been, right, the center for seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacrifices from the Old Testament. The fulfillment of the law and the ordinances, but instead was the center for rejection. The high priest responsible for guiding the people of Israel to that relationship with God had become the chief blocking point to prevent the people from understanding and coming to Christ. So for us, we are to proclaim Christ in our day-to-day lives, but we can't hold back because we, we know that many will reject God's truth. Also note that Really interesting, just as Saul was, was already on the path to Damascus, thought he was going there for his own purposes, it's interesting to think, if, he, if for some reason Christ had decided not to strike him down on the road to Damascus and chose a different way, Saul would have ended up at the synagogues without a doubt as well. He was a true believer and follower. He would have been there anyway. But God had other purposes and plans for him, and he goes to the synagogues, the center for rejection, and publicly proclaims Christ. So, like Saul, we should recognize, and we have to recognize, that it's God who transforms his people through Christ, and that we are specifically chosen, specifically and specially chosen instruments for his use. And we can also see next that we should expect a response from the world. We should expect to see a response from the world. We see that Saul goes to the synagogues and he proclaims Christ. And what was the first reaction that we see here? It's amazement. The Jews are amazed, right? Because for those fighting the hardest to destroy Christ, their conversion and transformation, their radical transformation, demonstrates the power of God at all odds with worldly wisdom. The people of Damascus, they knew what Saul was en route for. They knew he was coming. It's clear from the passage. And so they were in awe of that transformation of purpose that occurred. In verse 22, it says that Saul confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You see, Saul knew the scriptures. He was that true believer. He had studied them. But he had taken that and he was one that was bent on destroying Christ before transformation. But when the Lord opened his eyes and revealed his blindness and then revealed the truth that, that Jesus is the one that makes the Old Testament and the law make sense, right? Saul was able to articulate and proclaim the truths and how Jesus perfectly fulfilled those truths. But we also should know and recognize that logic doesn't equal salvation. Because instead of taking, instead of the Jews taking this living proof and turning to Jesus, the Jews' amazement transitioned into plots to destroy Saul and destroy that evidence that he was proclaiming. And so for us, if we are living and proclaiming God's truth, we can expect 
to see amazement in our, our neighbors' lives, amazement that we are acting outside the norms of this world, but we can also expect to see from some and, and many enmity, hatred, attacks, ridicule, isolation, and we can know this because the gospel is a direct affront and is at odds with the passions and pleasures of this world. And in the culture, for us here in 21st century America, that sees, the, you know, desires the self-gratification and the freedom to sin, what Jesus offers is the freedom from sin. So, through the amazement attacks, just like for Saul, we are to continue to proclaim Christ. And I want, to make, I want to make another just side note here. Note that through these attacks on Saul, Saul doesn't react uniformly in all cases, right? He does in a certain way. He reacts by following the Lord's leading. But it's different in each situation. Here in Acts 9, we see that Saul, and very just like following the Lord's leading, it's, it's always the Lord's leading to proclaim Christ. But we see here that in one moment he goes to the synagogues. In another moment, right, when he is being targeted to be being killed here, he actually flees to continue the Lord's ministry. And we have no reason to believe that he was disobeying Christ's leading from, from this passage. Later, through Acts, we're going to see that he follows the Lord's leading to remain in jail after an earthquake in which he could have fled with Silas. And later, he appeals to Caesar when he could have been released much earlier. And really, my point here is that, yes, constantly we are, we are to follow Christ's leading, God's leading, to proclaim Christ, but it's not going to be uniform in our lives. And we're to rest in His sovereign grace and in His direction. So, besides our own response and those of the world, we can also see here in Acts um, and expect to see a response from the church, a response from us here. Uh, the first lesson I want to draw out is that nothing is too hard for God. When Saul flees Damascus and comes to Jerusalem, the disciples did not believe his profession. They thought it was a ploy to identify and destroy them. Only after Barnabas steps in, steps forward and vouches for Saul's transformation, through Ananias' original witness at Damascus, and from Saul's preaching, do the disciples then bring in Saul and accept him in Jerusalem. So, as a church, we need to constantly relearn that nothing is too great for God. We have to remember our own transformation and the work of God in our lives. The work of God that took us from a blind, helpless state, unable to see our need for Him, into a place where we submit fully to His will and His transformational work, His sanctification, building us up to know Him better. And in that, we need to remember that we need to bring in others that might scare us, might not look like us, or speak like us, or have threatened us in the past. We must bring, us, bring them into our lives, our homes, and into our churches, submitting to God's perfect plan for reconciliation to Him, and us as mouthpieces to forward that work. Now, of course, we're to be wise, but we must be like Barnabas and step out of our comfort zone and stand with others in the gospel, even when uncomfortable and at risk to ourselves. 
We must do so knowing that nothing, once again, is out of the reach of God and the gospel. That broken relationship, that broken marriage, our own weakness that we're, I know I'm often confronted with on a regular basis. Lord, am I living out, am I living out the boldness that I see here in Acts? Am I relying on the Holy Spirit's conviction and boldness in Him to proclaim His, His gospel at every opportunity He brings in front of me? And we've got to remember that even in our weakness and our own struggles in sin. We are to come around each other as a church to encourage each other, to pray for one another, to speak the truth in love, and look out for each other's physical and spiritual welfare. Notice that it is the church in Jerusalem that actually assists in Saul's escape to Caesarea and Tarsus at their own risk, and all the while supporting Saul and those in the church to preach boldly. Okay, so finally, what then? So what to all this? Well, we see the so what in verse 31. In verse 31 in Acts, we see God's plan being actively fulfilled and being carried out based on Saul and the others following the purpose that Christ set out for them in verses 15 and 16 as executing and being the, that chosen instrument for, for Christ's power, for Christ's fulfillment of His purpose. So we see in the church, the church had spiritual peace. It was being built up. It was being strengthened. It was walking in the fear of the Lord. It was walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the church multiplied. This is that purpose of, being, of carrying out the result of that purpose being carried out. That believers, that we are th- that chosen instrument to carry out, carry the name of Christ for His sake and glory. We will get to see the awesome impacts of that purpose being fulfilled throughout the rest of Acts. And we should know that this is the purpose and the blessings for us here in Jacksonville, North Carolina, at Pillar Jacksonville. It doesn't say that the persecution stopped here in Acts or they had a physical or emotional peace. The peace that is seen here is due to the peace that surpasses all worldly understanding in confidently resting in God's purpose for our lives and for the church. So, a few parting shots for us to continue. And going back to the example of Baghdadi. Saul's transformation is as much as if al-Baghdadi had been converted. Think about that. And I think back, when I heard, Al- when, when I heard Baghdadi had been killed, my first and natural, natural reaction was to celebrate his death. And this reaction, it struck home for me during a youth group, um, the next youth group that met, uh, that my wife and I were leading, leading, where some of the youth were discussing what had happened and how he died. And one of the youth said it was sad. And she was right. It was sad, because think about it. With fair confidence, his soul is in everlasting torment, separated from God. And it struck me that I realized that I had never once prayed for his soul or for his salvation. And it made me think, what if he had been saved? What if instead of sending out these messages to tear down Christ and Christians all around the world, what if he had been sending out 
that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Imagine how many millions of Muslims would have, could have come to know Christ. And we know that wasn't Christ's plan in this situation, but we need to think about that. Well, here in Acts, we're, we, we just read about this happening. Saul's conversion was the same exact thing that happened here. And we're on a journey here through Acts, spoiler alert, that sets up Saul, turned Paul, to go before the feet of Caesar, the all-powerful king at that time in the area, leading to the conversion of millions. And you could argue to us here today, sitting in this church, God's plan being carried out. So as we recognize the transformation that Christ has worked in our lives, we should seek to fulfill our purpose as chosen instruments to proclaim Christ and suffer for His sake. And while we do so, we should do so while praying for the biggest threats to our faith in Christ because those threats may have the largest potential to work radical transformation, reformation, and repentance around the world. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you recognizing your amazing power as we started off with, Lord. We see this transformation in the life of Saul. And peeling it back before looking at before, during, and after, we see that same transformation that you work in all of our lives. And that while completely unique, it's not unique. You work that unique transformation in all those that you've called and chosen to be sons of God. And Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you for Saul's example here and his response to your saving power. And Lord, we just praise you for your mercy and your grace that you offer that out unconditionally. Not because you look down and you see, see us and, and think that, oh, there's somebody that actually there's some good in or that I can use because they have a certain amount of talents or, or skills or they're really they're less bad than someone else. No, you you reach down and bestow your mercy even though justice would be that we are eternally separated from you, Lord. And we praise you for that and we thank you for that. Lord, cause us here to see this message, to hear this message, and to seek to fulfill your purpose that you lay out for us to be chosen instruments, to suffer for your sake and for your glory to all those around us. And Lord, I pray here for Baghdadi's successor. Lord, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashami al-Kirashi. Lord, only through belief in your son Jesus can we bring someone like this before you who leads one of the most evil organizations in modern times. But Lord, we know you are sovereign. We know you have power to transform his life to your own. And through this transformation, many millions could come to know you. So Lord, we lift up his soul and we ask that there be someone, maybe even someone among us here this morning that like Ananias would be led to go to him, even to the brink of death, even to the brink of torture and sacrifice, Lord, that they carry out your will. Lord, may you give us the boldness through your Holy Spirit to carry your work forward. Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are. In your name, amen.
So as the musicians go ahead and come on up, we'll continue.